Welcome to Tengridome. I'm your host, Iggy, and today is a very special day indeed. Again. Having realized that weekly breakdowns and recaps are pretty much covered by a recap show on YouTube and uh, the MMA podcast hosted by Ed and Sriram, I've decided that I'm pretty much free to talk about whatever I find interesting at the moment, as opposed to being stuck discussing recent fights. And uh, today's topic is an especially tricky one, and to that end, I've called upon two of the my uh, more learned and experienced fight side colleagues to help me work my way through it. And by learned and experienced, I do not mean old. Uh, well, I'm joking. I actually do mean that. I I think now that uh, now that that Baba has uh, signed off, that Hacks and I are almost certainly the two oldest members of the site. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) Kyle is about out as well. So it's just it's 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 mostly just a kids show. Yeah, we might actually we we might actually be the only two who are over the age of 30, which is (laughs) uh, funny to think of. But so it goes. We're probably older than all of the fighters, too, or at least like, you know, mental age. The ones that are older than us, you know, they're pretty much like completely gone, shall we say? Yeah, it's like me and Demi and Maya, you know, that's we're the same age. So, yeah, you're hearing the voices of said learned and experienced colleagues. And uh, in what is on its way to become a serious staple, I am joined by Hexerized, also known as prototype broke Soviet supercomputer gone haywire. Hello, Hex. Hello. On that topic, a friend of mine discovered the atomic bear symbol of a certain Soviet nuclear town, and that's all I get called now, the atomic bear supercomputer. I want to die. And our special guest today is Tommy Elliott, also known as Moai Cowboy on Twitter. Frequent listeners of Heavy Hands may recognize Tommy as person who sounds eerily like Pat Wyman, except he doesn't yell at corner at every opportunity. Hello, Tommy. Glad to have you with us today. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing very well. Doing very well. Yeah, Tommy is a BJJ and Judah Black Belt, for those who don't know, an author of many articles for the fight site, as well as a data scientist. So see, this is a thing. This is this is a thing now. I'm actually going to call upon people who are qualified to talk about stuff now instead of just bumbling my way through topics I barely understand myself because I live in a fucking field. On that note, let's not waste any time and jump straight in. So, uh, Recently, John Jones has been involved in a fairly public money dispute uh, with Dana White. Immediately after Francis Ngannou's uh, inspired performance against T.P. Miocic, John Jones came out saying that he will only fight Ngannou if he gets paid the big bucks, as opposed to the tiny little small bucks he's been getting paid for the majority of his career. I mean, not an especially unique occurrence. Many fighters have campaigned for getting paid according to their station at some point or another, but uh, in this case, Jones may find himself in a unique position of actually getting what he wants. Well, uh, not maybe not the absurd amount he proposed, but still. And at the time, my knee-jerk reaction could be summed up as uh, fair enough. The UFC calls him the GOAT, so why shouldn't John Jones be paid in a, uh, an amount of money equal to his station? And my exact words on the recap show were, regardless of how you feel about John Jones as a fighter and as a person, it is a fact that MMA fighters do not get paid well. And uh, But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that you cannot really disregard who Joan Jones is as a fighter and a person. And to do so would be to disregard the broader implications of what this uh, dispute may spell for the rest of the UFC roster and MMA as a whole. And so 
uh, John Jones has been the organization's favorite and has been given plenty of leeway both inside and outside the cage. And so him getting paid in this situation will likely not be the watershed that will suddenly lead uh, lead to trickle-down economics becoming a thing within the MMA bubble. So we're here to discuss that, and depending on how long it'll get us, we'll try and segue our way into a much more complicated topic of the institution of MMA itself and the various issues that plague it as a phenomenon. So, uh, Tommy, what's your view on the whole money talk thing? So my view on the money talk is that uh, John Jones is absolutely right to ask for uh, for more money to fight Nganu. You know, let's say that pay-per-view sells 900000 It's probably a little bit of a big number, but Jones is one of their larger draws, and certainly a, a long-time champion like Jones moving up to heavyweight is going to garner a lot of attention, and Nganu's uh, becoming more of a draw and is certainly a uh, you know just a, a show every time right so let's say it does nine hundred thousand. their recent price increase that's roughly 70 bucks a pop um so that's 63 million dollars and that's before you take into account uh any money that you could allocate from the espn deal to cover the the fact that they're getting to air the prelims and uh, and what they would make so um and as well by the time this happens uh live gates will be a thing again so let's say that the ufc grosses 70 million dollars on this pay-per-view how much of that would they gross without John Jones versus Francis Ngannou? If you just slotted some random fight in there, they're not going to sell the pay-per-views. They're not going to get the the large gate, you know, at a, at a major Vegas hotel. Like, it's just not going to happen. So Jones is absolutely right to demand more money. Um, he is, will, will be the driving force of the vast majority of the total revenue that the UFC would reap from this event. Um, but the UFC cannot afford to pay it to him because of the precedent it sets in my opinion he's going to end up getting screwed because uh dana white is whatever else you want to say about him is fanatical about protecting the ufc's brand its position in the industry and its position with respect to the fighters that it employs even though it says that they're not actually employees um so yes jones is right no i do not think he will end up getting paid or if he does it will be in such a way that it does not set a strong precedent. If if they can work that out, then he could he could make the money. I think the money is much less the issue for uh, for Dana and for the UFC and for WME than it is the the precedent it sets in terms of uh, fighter relations. McGregor already uh, knocked down some of that wall, and I think the UFC really worries a great deal about uh, fighters aggressively bargaining becoming the norm. That's my basic thought on the matter. No, that's the thing with uh, the UFC, isn't it? That's uh, it. It absolutely makes enough money to actually like pay basically all of their roster. The uh, well, maybe not the amount of money that the roster themselves uh, request, but uh, uh, a reasonable amount to satisfy their own interests and while still uh, working at a profit. And uh, yeah, the McGregor situation definitely kind of gave. Uh, the UFC execs a bit of a PTSD <laughs> in that they actually don't want to to cultivate talent to the point where they get to the same bargaining position that McGregor managed to get to. But yeah, Hacks, I'm sure you have uh, lots of thoughts on that one. Well, yes. Um, I think broadly speaking, <laughs> there are kind of there are kind of three questions at play, right? Like the first one is. Um, how much is John Jones reasonably like 
entitled to claim that he should have. So, like, what's his bargaining position? The second question is, what's Ngannou's bargaining position? Because, like, you know, most companies, I suspect, look at a fight like Jones versus Ngannou as, like, a pool of funds that they're going to allocate money towards. And if one fighter asks for a larger percentage, it might come at the, you know, the exclusion of the other fighter. And I think the third question is, like, what's the... What's the outcome that produces, like, if you want to get econ E, are the social good? So the social element in this case being, if you like, the MMA ecosphere. Um, And I think that what has been really interesting to me in this entire discussion is, number one, nobody really defines what they want. Like, when they say John Jones negotiating is a win for MMA, do they mean... John Jones? Do they mean Francis Ngannou? Do they mean both? Do they mean the UFC? Do they mean the greater fighter ecosphere? People don't really define those terms, which makes the arguments really hard to pass and evaluate. Um, And secondly, people um, have very, you know, as you said, what is nuanced? People have very black and white ideas of how bargaining works in a labor market sense, because that's what the UFC is. So, I mean, just to be ultra basic, right? Like a lot of people are saying John Jones is a is is a draw and he's a great fighter, so he should get everything he asks for. Which is in one sense true, but as you've kind of alluded to, John Jones is also a catastrophic fuck up who has like consistently <laughs> failed to be on pay-per-view cards because he's too busy like getting drunk and crashing cars or like being, you know, like having NC statuses in fights he clearly won because he was on like banned substances. Um, John Jones may be a great draw. I, I don't disagree. But he is also uh, a bit of a wild child. He's not a predictable, stable, reliable investment in the way somebody like GSP is. And that's going to affect the bargaining. So, yeah, I guess just as an opening to points number one people aren't specific in what they mean when they talk about this debate they don't clarify who they specifically think wins like slices of a pizza and secondly people are um locked into very much one size fits all like john jones should get exactly what he asked for or if john jones gets what he asked for that's good for everybody without thinking about like bigger picture stuff like how would john jones getting everything he asks for change the bargaining position of the average UFC fighter or the average UFC champion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's a really key point, because if you look at what actually, you, you know, the UFC is very interesting when you compare it to a sport like boxing, because, uh, you know, people love to compare the purses and in a vacuum, that's not very meaningful because the structures, of the two sports are so different and the UFC Sell, lean so much on its brand equity uh, and its ability to to sell pay-per-views and to uh, to get eyeballs on ESPN based upon the brand rather than the individual fighters that you know the value of any one fighter is a little different than like in boxing where the entirety of a pay-per-view is the the headline fight right um, but at the same time because of that if you look at boxing cards and boxing payouts. Yeah, the top guy on a, you know, Deontay Wilder might be making $3 million for a fight or, t- or $5 million, whatever he makes. But the guy who's fighting four fights before him might legitimately be making two or $3,000. Whereas in the UFC, if you're on the main card, like you're probably making, you know, for the most part, twenty to $40,000 for the fight. So 
John Jones getting his way and uh, getting paid out based on the fact that he is the draw and he is the one driving buys. Certainly good for John Jones. Certainly good for the the really small handful of people who uh, who can drive pay per view buys and who who do operate as uh, independent brands, independent of the UFC's own brand. Um, but it would probably be pretty bad actually for a lot of the uh, the lower tier fighters who are filling out cards who are generally speaking paid more than uh, their counterparts in other combat sports who are uh, who are far down the totem pole. This is a bit reflective of the broader like uh, tendency amongst MMA fans to kind of default to very binary standards of thinking. And that, uh, like, I've seen a lot of uh, comments uh, saying that something along the lines of you can't be pro fighter pay and simultaneously be against Jones getting paid. And uh, I think in in that respect, I think that's not entirely correct because you. In my opinion, in my in the way I see it, you can't be like, oh, Jones getting paid is objectively a good thing because it sets once again it sets a precedent uh, where in order to get good money you need to find yourself in the same position that Jones is, and by that I mean basically you need to get to the point where you can start being a big investment in part of the UFC that is also. And that is a very crucial point that he, that is also willing to play ball, because at the end of the day, Jones isn't doing this to make sure everyone else gets paid. Uh, he's doing this so that he gets paid. He's not interested in the creation of a union or the expansion of the LE Act or anything like that. Like, uh, again, my knee jerk reaction was, all right, Jones is a dickhead, but he deserves the money. And then the more I thought about it, the more it made me question, like, does he really? And I mean, who will benefit from it in the end anyway? Certainly not the rest of the roster. Two big things. Firstly, to kind of another comparison of the UFC and boxing. Now, this may be to some degree my personal opinion, but I feel like the idea of the best fight the best, and that's what's supposed to fucking happen, is a significant part of the UFC's um, branding, right? Like, I remember a lot of people having not a lot of sympathy for Demetrius Johnson when he didn't pull large pay-per-view numbers. They were basically like, oh, like, you know, if he loses, like, twice, the UFC should just cut him. Or, like, who cares about him? He's a small guy and people don't watch small guy fights. And Jack Slack had a whole spiel about how the UFC screwed up that. But even if Demetrius Johnson is not a huge pay-per-view draw, having Demetrius Johnson when he was the champ in your brand gives you a really strong fucking argument that hey you have some of the most you have the most skilled fighters in the world on your roster so so like i think a lot of people are so zoned in on pay-per-views which is a very good way of measuring one impact of a fighter but often neglect to some degree the um the broader or if you like the non-pay-per-view impacts that a fighter can have on a brand that's one thing that i do think gets overlooked the second thing i would say is it with respect to john jones and whether or not his position could be beneficial for fighters a huge part of john whether or not i think john jones actually getting what he wants is a is a huge benefit for fighters is so hard to measure because and this is something that drives me up the wall i swear non-aircon people don't think about this often the actual bargaining between john jones and the ufc is closed door 
We don't see what actually happens. Like, John Jones could get up there and say, I'm a really skilled guy. I'm the most skilled guy, according to you. You say the UFC is full of skilled guys and girls. You should pay skilled guys and girls more because that's what your brand is. If John Jones comes out and negotiates with that angle, yeah, I can see an argument that he's actually doing a lot for fighters, even if, for example, he may not be pushing for a union. But if John Jones just comes into the negotiations and says, fuck everybody else i'm the king i'm the lion i'm john bones jones i should get it i don't care what happens to them that's a pretty anti-fighter bargaining position and we don't fundamentally know what tack or attitude he takes because all the bargaining is closed doors we can only kind of guess based on the public positioning that the two parties take so, yeah, I would kind of further reinforce there's like a lack of nuance in thinking about these things and it prevents people from actually forming an educated opinion. Well, I, I'm not sure that the direction that uh, John attacks this from matters much overall to how it affects other fighters. And, and I, the reason is it goes back to something you said earlier about DJ, which I think you're absolutely right, which is you, you got to ask yourself, why is it that boxing can pay the sixth fight on a huge pay-per-view like a thousand bucks to each guy to fight and a guy's you know coming out and fighting and like adidas gym shorts he bought a target like why is that a thing that can happen in boxing but in the ufc even the lowest fighters on the card are making like 10 and 10 and the answer is exactly what you said hacks is that they their brand is this is where the best fighters in the world uh live this is where the best fights are. This is where the best will fight the best. So therefore, they have a pretty strong incentive to uh, to make themselves a destination for fighters, which they do largely by uh, largely by pay. Um, certainly, the incentive to to fight other top fighters is a big deal, and and the brand is a big deal. But again, that's all maintained by consistently having the best fighters um, in the world and and paying them more than they would make other places. Uh, so you know, John saying that he should get paid because he's really good and good fighters should get paid versus saying that he's a pay-per-view draw. I don't think it really affects the UFC's calculus on the maintenance of their brand. And um, I, I think what you would see most likely is that if John were to win and get paid a lot more, let's say, for this fight, that would both bite into the UFC's profit margin a bit, but it would probably also lead them to paying – lower tier fighters a little bit less they can't they can't go to nothing they can't go to like these you know a thousand and a thousand because then they're not going to be the destination anymore for up-and-comers um but they would probably pay the lower fighters marginally less because wme still has a lot of debt service related to the ufc and they are not going to forego um those cash flows they just they can't afford to otherwise the investment was stupid and they they won't do that unless they're absolutely forced to I think it, it doesn't affect so much the UFC's calculus per se. What I do kind of wonder, though, is how much it might affect the individual, if you like, bargaining calculus of UFC fighters. Because like one point that I discussed with uh, Timon and Dan a couple of days ago was if you think about the, the M MMA as like a... I don't know, like a pool at the end of a river or a waterfall. The streams that feed into it, uh, at the moment at least, is pretty much like, in the UFC that is, uh, a bi strong bias on American wrestling and a strong bias on like what we're kind of seeing is Eastern European fighters. And these are environments which, as I understand, 
you would definitely not call pro union, like particularly NCAA athletics. As far as I can understand, you know, there's still an argument over whether NCAA players should even get paid. So we're not even at, you know, the union train is like 150 miles down the track. We're not even there yet. So the awareness by many fighters, I would suspect, and Iggy's, I think, said enough about unionization in Eastern European countries, particularly in places like the Caucasus or Dagestan. (laughs) Uh, labor market unions <laughs> challenging dictatorial regimes no um, so like i think it would be interesting to see what if you like for lack of a better word um class consciousness changes in you know the eyes of individual ufc fighters would 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 do to change this equation because on the whole i would say the culture of mma is if not anti-union certainly union skeptical and Maybe a realization that could come as a result of this type of high-level bargaining, if it was made public, it won't be, but if it was, is a lot of, I don't know, let's say top 20, top 15 fighters, particularly in skilled divisions, realize how badly they're getting screwed and how important their presence and voices towards the UFC's skill-based branding discussion. Like, I don't expect any of this to create large-scale changes, but... The fact that the UFC, particularly under the brothers, was so anti-union and had so much experience at union busting and jumped in at such an early level whenever this discussion got started suggests to me that they are a lot more fearful of the consequences than they want to admit. I I think they are, and I think they should be. Um, You know, if you look at the the kind of model that I think UFC fighters should adopt, it would be something like the the NBA Players Association or the Major League Baseball Union, where there's certainly room for stars to make a lot more money, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars more than the average player, but the average player still has very high guaranteed minimums and uh, a lot of protection in terms of how they're treated uh, by the company. And the result is that the share of profits that are taken by the owners is lower. Now, obviously, NBA, Major League Baseball, and this is all in the United States, um, the profits are high enough that they're still making money hand over fist, and MLB's profit-sharing model makes this even more interesting. But in any case, they're still very profitable, and the UFC would be as well, um, but it wouldn't be the levels of profitability that were present when WME bought them and that motivated the sale price for the purchase and also um, the debt issuance that was necessary for the purchase. So, you know, uh, fighters should push for union, but it's just not, to your point, it's just not kind of in the DNA. It doesn't seem of fighters given their, their outlook on things and where they're from. And, you know, you mentioned class consciousness, which is a, an interesting way to think about it, but you, you have to think that I, I fighters, Part of the notion of class consciousness, I think, is uh, the notion that I'm probably going to stay in the class I'm in, and I'm a representative of that class, and I need to defend the interests of that class, whereas every fighter thinks they're going to be champion. No no fighter thinks of themselves as like a middle-class, you know, prelim action fighter until they're already so late in their career that they just don't have much pull with the UFC. Um, to get a big mass of fighters to come on board and say like, oh yeah, you know, I'll, I'll probably never be champion in a position to make a ton of money. Um, that's going to be a pretty hard sell with with fighters as a group, I think. Yeah, a lot of people uh, talk about you know, unionization in uh, in the sense that 
it's the fighters themselves who should be constantly pushing for it and they're putting a lot of expectations on these fighters uh, to like to be cognizant enough of their situation to band together and strike out against the corporate oppressor or whatever and that's just not how any of these athletes think <laughs> i mean once again, you can't get to the Olympics if you think uh, in terms of, oh, I'm going to just get there and have uh, and show a good accounting of myself by placing, I don't know, fifth. Nobody thinks like that. You can't get to the Olympics by thinking like that. And they're inherently like uh, geared towards thinking that I'm going to be the one and I don't need a union because I'm going to strike out on my own. I'm good enough to get to where I want to get on my own without any outside help and I don't need uh, the help of others to, to do so. And so it's just kind of uh, going against the grain uh, of the usual fighter sensibilities in a sense. So it's kind of another hurdle in that respect. It's kind of interesting to me because um, firstly, the obvious implicit reason or one implicit reason for this is, you know, uh, a UFC fighter is an individual, an NBA team is a team, a baseball team is a team. But Part of me kind of wonders um, if we might see, at least to some degree, a move towards fighters thinking of their camp and their team as their team. That's kind of one concept that could perhaps provide a little more impetus. The other thing I'd say is like the old post, which we could probably attach to this podcast of like revenue sharing, showing that the UFC takes like 80% of the profits, fighters get like 10 to 15, and then you compare it with other like American sports and the profit sharing is much closer to 50%. So that kind of gives you an idea of how much um, how much the difference is. The third thing I'd kind of say is, you know, part of me wonders if WME, IMG are actually fucking all of this up. Because I've kind of implied I think they're incompetent in the extreme in many ways. But one thing that's interesting to me is under WME, IMG, firstly, they've completely really struggled to make any stars on their own. Like... You know, under the the brothers, we saw the rise of figures like Ronda and Connor. Have we really seen somebody who's kind of risen to the top that the UFC media engine has been able to produce and push? They tried with Ngannou, but, like, if you can't make a star out of Ngannou, you should just quit the media business. Like, Jesus Christ, that story (laughs) writes itself. But my other thought is... Who's low-key becoming a bit of a, a sexy all-American face star under WIMG? It's Dustin Poirier. What does Dustin Poirier do? He talks about how it's not a Poirier effort. It's a team effort. He beat the shit out of Conor McGregor. He says, fuck the title. I want the money. Like, low-key, the most successful, in my opinion, if you like, star who's made himself under the WIMG watch is a guy who, to like somebody like Dana, is basically... I'm not saying he is, but in Dana's eyes, because Dana is a twisted, mutated tomato who can't think rationally, a fucking socialist. Here's Dustin talking about my team and my family and charity and give me the money, fuck your you know championship, it doesn't mean shit. <laughs> it's just funny to me how WME are kind of making symbols and conditions and fighters that are actually undermining their own narrative. Um, sure. You know, WME is subject to the same um, arrogances of almost any uh, powerful company, especially one that's headed by, you know, a single individual like Ari Emanuel, or at least largely driven by that, which is the assumption that competence in one area translates to any areas. You know, they're they're a talent agency and they've been extremely successful at that. What the fuck does that have to do with owning a sports league? 
Um, <laughs> you know, that's that's not what they do. Uh, so it is not surprising that they have not done a good job of it. And honestly, even the notion of, of creating stars like are they publicists? I mean, are they are they especially good at creating stars? They're good at, at representing them and getting them good parts, um, you know, getting them good deals. But could they make a star? Um, you know, I to your point, Hacks, we haven't seen anybody cross over to mainstream celebrities since Conor McGregor. Uh, and that was something that it happened with the UFC's assistance, but I don't know that I would say it happened because the of the UFC. I'm, I'm not sure they're actually especially good at building stars, though. That's such a hard thing to do. It's it's hard to say that it's hard to blame them too much for uh, having a mixed record on it. Yeah, and to that point, it's uh, the process of building stars and uh, any combat sports. It's kind of uh, more of a it's not something you can exactly control purely because of the chaotic nature of the sport itself. Uh, uh, most of the stars that have risen over the years in, in any combat sports have been mostly, it's been mostly a result of their own achievements rather than anything that that's uh, been done by the promoters really. And uh, once again, is it really in WME IMG's interest even to get um, to try and develop someone to the same level as McGregor managed to develop, because uh, as I've said earlier, the kind of it seems to me, it's kind of an assumption of my on my part, and it's uh, it may not be true, but it does seem like they have a bit of a they do seem anxious about uh, fight, seeing fighters develop to the level that McGregor managed to develop, because it uh, gives them gives the fighter a certain bargaining position that. Uh, current uh, UFC champions do not have in that McGregor can just hold up a division for a couple of years and then barge in fight whoever he wants and then get uh, get paid lots of money for that uh, I mean is it really in WME IMG's interest to do so to help the rise of stars like this one I think it's a, a really good illustration of like where what like so let's just think of the ufc as a like let's think of mma as a economy and then let's think of the ufc as the big daddy the main producer of resources what suits them their private costs that they pay to promote conor mcgregor is a very different thing to like if you like the social cost of the mma economy like for all of the bad things that conor mcgregor has done and there's a lot of them i think it's probably fair to say he's been a huge net positive for mma if only because he's brought so many new eyes on the sport like, he's expanded the realms of what was possible. Same thing goes with uh, Ronda Rousey. But <laughs> if you make the whole pie bigger, you, you know, you dilute the influence of the UFC itself. Like, I think, it, or at least in some contexts you do. Like, it's possible. And part of me wonders if, like, under WME IMG, the UFC is actually almost terrified of the sport growing too big and too fast because it will challenge their control over it and part of me kind of almost wonders to some degree if that's why they're quite hostile towards this jones and ganu fight being dictated by the terms of the fighters because i think particularly with ganu he has just such an incredible story not just from a personal growth perspective but almost from a kind of globalist perspective like a you know here's a guy who traveled and was homeless and did all of these incredible things under incredible constraints it's the perfect story to go global but Nganu is 
worldly in a sense from those experiences he's clearly aware of how badly the ufc can screw you they already screwed him once you know when he lost to Miocic. I, I part of me wonders if the ufc in this current administration has a, a deep fear of stars getting so big that they can stand up to them but also in a sense the the brothers again you know the original ufc under the brothers a lot of people joke about their criminal, you know, um, links and so on, but they had a fantastic sense, I think, of finger on the pulse where they kind of understood when to just take their hands away and stop trying to stage mum certain um, champions like GSP. Now, Dana hated GSP. Clearly, the UFC had a lot of, you know, um, difficulty with handling GSP, but they also knew when to just admit this is a goofy weirdo who likes dinosaurs and beautiful women and talks about like almost shitting himself from fear every fight. We've just got to let this guy be this guy. The UFC now is so determined to like stage mum some champions. I think they're making them into bigger threats to them than they would be otherwise. Again, Dustin Poria. Well, I, so I think it's important when you talk about the UFC and you think about their motives to recognize they're not they're not hostile to fighters they're not immoral what they are is, is utterly amoral and they'll do whatever they can that will increase their profits and guarantee them the largest uh, amount of revenue um, in you know over whatever term you want to uh, you want to look at so I, I don't think that the UFC is afraid of people getting big because if they get big under the UFC banner there's still not much of an infrastructure for them to go outside that and make anywhere with the kind of money that they make being a representative of the UFC. It's still probably better for a fighter to remain a part of the UFC brand than, than not. Even somebody who got as big as Conor McGregor has never intubated, not, not seriously about cutting ties with the UFC. The UFC obviously got a portion of, uh, of the, the Floyd Mayweather fight. Um, so, you know, I, I think they're, they'd be happy for people to get big, um, you know, what I think they probably worry about as much as anything else is just getting caught in this trap where the top fighters can bargain for their worth, uh, as individuals and the bottom fighters, the lower tier fighters continue to get paid a lot of money because relatively speaking, because that's how they maintain the overall brand and how they can sell you know, a shit card on a Wednesday night on ESPN plus because it's the UFC and you know that the fighters will be good, even if you've never heard of them. And that remains largely true. I mean, I'll give the UFC this. They deliver on their brand promise. Like you can watch any random card and within the bounds of combat sports being awesome or being terrible, like all the fighters will all be competent. You don't see the kind of terrible matches you'll see in Bellator or one where some person just looks like, you know, they pulled them off, uh, you know, out of the taco truck and threw them in some shorts and, and put them uh, in, in a cage. Um, the UFC does a good job of that. But I, I think that's where you would see their profit margins really get squeezed is if the top guys are able to establish a consistent pattern of bargaining for uh, a very large share of the profits, you know, the, the, the share that they deserve as the draws. And then the lower tier fighters still make a lot of money because they're the ones maintaining the brand as the best in the world and where the best fight the best. I think uh, Hacks uh, started segueing us a little towards the uh, broader institutional questions. And this is something you've already touched upon uh, in that a very uh, important point you've raised uh, that I think is very significant in that uh, the UFC isn't immoral. They are 
amoral. And that may seem to some people like it's a distinction without a difference. But there is a very, very like significant dif- difference in that uh, there's a tendency amongst fight fans who support, who proclaim to support fighters, in that they the, the struggle between the fighters and the UFC is a class struggle, and obviously they ascribe some kind of moral uh, significance to that struggle, and in that the UFC obviously represents the evil corporate oppressor, and the fighters are all these uh, abused lower classes that uh, who struggle is objectively morally good. And uh, it's a bit more difficult than that. It's a bit more morally complex than that. It's not quite as clear cut as some people think, because obviously, <laughs> well, without um, uh, resorting to moralism of my own, uh, many fighters are kind of terrible people themselves <laughs> because of the way it's just being the way it is. It kind of, like shady types are just drawn to it, and shady types have, obi- have always been drawn to uh, combat sports. But uh, uh, coming back to institutions, it's more of a question of uh, the, whether the institution of MMA is extractive or inclusive. And right now, I think it's more it's um, geared towards uh, geared more towards being extractive rather than inclusive, in that it's uh, more concerned with preser- preserving its control. The UFC itself is more concerned with preserving its control of the market rather than uh, with any, rather than with pushing for any significant growth uh, in the sport overall and raising awareness about the sport overall in the eyes of the global populace. Uh, uh, just as Hax pointed out, with the with the way Ngano kind of represents, uh, maybe unwittingly or maybe wittingly represents a, a globalist cause, uh, be, becomes an example for the globalist cause. This is no longer Tangri Dome. This is the second neoliberal podcast. Get Bastiat in here. Do it now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He would actually probably show up if you invited him. Hey, Bastiat, you're listening? Um, DM me. So um, I think Tommy hit on something that actually can provide a really interesting, if you like, almost behaviorally economic or game theory insight into why the UFC might preference control as a means to maximize profit over growth. So... If we have a situation where the UFC essentially runs a tier two or a two-tier economy, champs or let's say, um, let's not say contenders, let's say elites and champs and then everybody else and the elites and champs get good money and the everybody else doesn't. Um, the way in which this can all come apart where the UFC can't afford to pay the, the everybody else a good amount of money and the champs what they want is if the champs and the elites start log jamming the division because then they have to start looking to other fighters to not only provide entertainment but to also provide if you like um is it sorry i might have the term wrong but like people that were hired by companies to break up union strikes i can't remember the english term um pinkertons so, yeah, yeah. So the UFC has to start looking at like lower level fighters, but the only way they're going to convince lower level fighters to start jumping up the ranks and kick out the, shall we say, the log jamming elites is by paying them more. So the more the top fighters log jam the division, the more the top fighters refuse to let a division grow and develop and fight, the harder it becomes for the UFC to maintain its brand identity or even really offer just reasonably compelling fights with a clear sense of direction and narrative because it's not a sports company it's an entertainment company really is by giving more power to the lower fighters so i think that kind of really hits on why even if the ufc is being immoral rather than immoral 
this fetishistic need for control is something that they they need to embrace because if the top fighters don't want to fight, the bottom fighters are going to need to be paid more to take the same risks. That's just the reality. But if that happens and the UFC's got top fighters who won't fight unless it's for champ pay, like PPV champ pay, bottom fighters who want, at least want mid-tier pay, and the UFC's got no way of really winning this debate, particularly because what we're seeing is an increasing number of Eastern European, Dagestani, Chechen, so on, so on, so on, so on, so on, fighters coming into the UFC well, the biggest, the biggest, if you like, Eastern European fighter ever who was offered everything from the UFC said, fuck your money. My ethics and morality are more important than me. You can't bargain with me with money, fame or attention. Go fuck yourself in in Habib. So to cap everything off, not only do we, do we have Tommy's two-tier, if you like, economic payment system, the threat of divisional logjam, which is forcing the UFC to maintain control, their biggest source of new, exciting top-level fighters are just not going to be as interested in the UFC's bargaining power as they were before. It's kind of a fascinating situation, and I don't think WME, IMG are really well-positioned to manage any of this. There comes the question of whether they actually realize the implications of what they're doing and what is uh, what the situation you just described spells for them as a company. I don't think they even think about the, uh, these things in, in these exact terms. I mean, it's, I'm not saying they're incompetent in that respect, but I don't think they have. I don't think they have the exact priorities uh, in mind for to 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 address the situation in the first place. So, so that's a hard one. Um, I've worked in mergers and acquisitions a bit, and uh, you know, I, I think people underrate the degree to which companies understand what they're getting into and what they're doing. Like most most people who run big companies are not stupid by any stretch of the imagination. You can say any number of bad things about them, but they're rarely stupid in my experience. Um, so, you know, I, I think WME probably knew to an extent what they were getting into, but when you buy a company, you're making a you're making a bet. Right. And really, you're making a series of bets because you're you're assuming that the things that have made this company profitable um, are going to continue to exist in such a way that they continue to be profitable. You're perhaps betting on your own ability uh, to expand their profitability. So, you know, WME probably knew it's a possibility that top fighters could, um, you know, could stymie uh, divisional movement and could demand more money and cut into their profit margins. But that was a risk they were willing to take. Now, I do think it's a reasonable question to ask whether or not they have a concrete plan to manage this risk. And my guess would be they probably don't uh, because it's fairly idiosyncratic. You know, you're dealing with individual fighters and really a very, very small number of them. I mean, who can really have the kind of discussion uh, with WME that John Jones is having right now? Like McGregor? Maybe Adesanya? Um, it's a pretty darn small list of people who have any kind of real bargaining power to review draws at the moment. Um, so my guess is it's probably a risk that they anticipated but were willing to take. But now it's kind of blowing up in their face because Jones is essentially saying, well, I'm not going to move the light heavyweight division forward. So what has traditionally been one of your marquee divisions is headed by is, – is a champion by somebody who – most people, most fans probably don't think could beat me, even though I think Jan Blakovich probably would beat John Jones at this point. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, but at the same time, he's not going to go up and fight at heavyweight unless you pay him because he has enough money. And, you know, he's, I, frankly, I don't think very interested in fighting in general anymore. So you really have to make it worth his while. 
Um, so, you know, they're, they're really in a pickle because they know they have to maintain the brand. They've always known that they have to, to spend the money necessary to do that. But then at the same time to have these outsized uh, profitability events like big pay-per-views with huge draws, their costs are probably going to go up if Jones is able to hold the line here. Um, and this kind of goes back to Hax's early control, uh, earlier um, comment that it might be worth more for the UFC to maintain control than to maximize profits, at least in the near term. So it may be that they make a very conscious decision to say, like, yeah, we can make this Jones fight happen, but if we do, then everybody who can sell a pay-per-view knows they can come to us and demand more money, so therefore we're just going to let it pass by the wayside. We'll give up this one opportunity for profitability, but it will allow us to maintain control. Because remember, maximizing profit and revenue are two different things, right? So growing the sport maximizes revenue, but... If the UFC has to accept a drastically lower share of the overall um, profits in terms of margin uh, to expand the sport, but they can make more money by being smaller and having it more tightly controlled, they will they will choose the latter. That's what I mean when I say they're amoral. They, they really don't have a stance on it one way or another, but where are they going to maximize their profit? Not revenue, profit. And it may be that it's with a smaller sport where they have uh, – that they rule with an iron hand. I don't know. Does – a common sentiment amongst uh, the fight fans and uh, amongst our staff as well is that from an outside, from a fan's perspective, the UFC seems incompetent. But, I mean, if you think about it in these terms, in the terms you've just uh, both described, it makes perfect sense the way they behave. Like, for example, I do not know how valid it is, how verifiable it is, but I've read... uh, many things about uh, i've read many people mention that the ufc actually runs a quota on how many eastern european or dagestani or fighters from the caucasus they have on the roster because they they are wary of uh, these incredibly well coached well trained all-rounders from caucasus or eastern europe just flooding the ufc and overtaking what is supposed to be on paper uh, primarily American company, <laughs> and uh, and that interferes with the brand a little because I mean I, they may pro- profess to the idea that uh, the UFC is the world leader, is it's the MMA leader, world's best fighters uh, compete there. But then again, I, I think if you look at uh, if you look at who at uh, the percentage of fans from each country. Obviously, the U.S. is going to be the largest one. And so naturally, as a company, the UFC has to cater to this market. And so it makes sense from their standpoint to put a hard lid, a hard cap on how many fighters from different regions they have in order to maintain American dominance uh, within their company. Oh, yes. Protectionism. That's never failed before. Every time it's ever been checking stopwatch. That's never late. (laughs) Um, so, um, I'm going to give a shout out to our very own fight site pair of Polish brothers that I hope they enjoy this. Uh, an outside context problem was the sort of thing most civilizations encountered just once and which they intended to encounter in rather the same way a sentence encountered a full stop. I don't think WMIMG are stupid as a company. I think that Tommy's analysis of, you know, companies are not stupid. They can get blindsided though is completely correct. I think that the divisional logjam is the sort of thing that you can plan for. Maybe they have, maybe they haven't. 
Um, it's hard to plan for, obviously, because you're dealing with so many individual disparate bargaining agents. In some ways, part of me almost wonders if collective bargaining might be a little bit easier for WEIMG because there's a much lower ratio, if you like, of noise or unexpected blindsiding. But I think the increasing globalization of MMA is an outside context problem. And it's one that I have a suspicion that almost any American company that is primarily involved in something like what WME IMG is, which is a holding company for talent and media agencies. I think that is an incredibly big outside context problem for a company like that because in the end, and I'm not knocking WME IMG, they are a company that serves a market where America dominates fairly strongly. You know, American culture is the dominant world culture. Nobody likes that, but it's true. It has a tremendous amount of... it has a tremendous institutional <laughs> advantage. Like it. <laughs> it has a tremendous advantage. But if you compare that field where WMEIMG is used to being a market leader, used to having certain institutional advantages, used to having a deep cultural uh, and knowledge advantage over almost everything else in the world, then you compare that to the UFC trying to manage and maintain and control fighters with an increasing number of incredibly skilled Eastern European fighters, increasingly skilled um, Southeast Asian fighters. Yeah, to me, it genuinely feels like an outside context problem. They don't have the understanding of the cultural differences which may affect bargaining priorities. They clearly didn't know how to handle Habib at all. They didn't seem to understand the importance of his religious convictions and his moralistic convictions. They didn't seem to understand the degree to which money mattered to him. They didn't seem to understand the degree to which his relationship with his father and his community and, um, as uh, as Tumen has said a few times, his position as almost a princeling in waiting before, obviously, his father passed in the community. Like, WME IMG really, as a, as a company, are not stupid, but it's an incredibly difficult position for them to be in to manage a globalizing MMA. But that's going to happen. If they don't take advantage of the global market labor pool, they're going to be outcompeted by companies that do, and their brand positioning is about having the most skills. So if you don't have a large talent pool or you restrict Eastern European fighters, they're going to go somewhere else. So, yeah, the UFC and WMIMG are really in a bind. Yeah, that's an interesting question because I I think in terms of the number of Eastern European fighters that they've had and which ones they've chosen, they've actually done a pretty good job on the whole. Um, and again, this is within the context of catering to an American market, right? They've they've let in some Eastern European fighters. Most of them have been quite successful. Uh, Habib and Petr Jan, obviously, I, I think, have risen to the top of extremely competitive divisions very quickly. There are probably a few other fighters like... Uh, you know, AAA and, uh, you know, some of these guys who, who would most likely be at the very top of those divisions as well. Um, and But what the UFC hasn't done uh, is they haven't brought in a proportional number of uh, Eastern European fighters proportional to their kind of their standing in the in, in uh, MMA as a whole. Right. Like there's probably plenty of uh, of ACB fighters who would just wipe out mid-card UFC guys and they don't bring them over because they don't think they'll be champions and it dilutes the Americanness of the brand. So I do think there's a, there's a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. Uh, side, sidebar text. Yes. Also Shabli. Yes, of course. Um, but um, 
you know, I, I, it is an interesting question because they are really, really caught. Uh, you know, if it wasn't for us, an idiotic knee from Petr Jan, the UFC would have no American champions right now. <laughs> Native-born <laughs> champions. I actually consider Kamaru Usman an American champion, but I can certainly understand why. Uh, <laughs> I can understand why why people internationally might not, and I sadly can understand or at least do understand why a certain number of uh, american fans might not um but you know that's that's a real problem for them i mean if you look at boxing and when boxing's heyday was it was when you had american champions in most divisions and certainly in the heavier weight divisions um the ufc was idiotic and they could never figure out how to market stipe miocic a goddamn firefighter for you know, white guy firefighter <laughs> uh, who fights in a very entertaining style and who just takes beatings and then comes back and KOs people. Ah, it's pathetic they couldn't market him. But, um, but in any case, I, I do think there is a real existential risk to the UFC when uh, you're caught between trying to serve the American market and then the fact that a lot of the talent is overseas, in many cases non-English speaking. I mean, that is just tough for them. Do you want to spend the money to build a star? Do you want to build a star of an Eastern European person who doesn't necessarily speak English, who might be a Muslim? I mean, again, given your core fan base, as terrible as it is, that's a problem. Um, or do you want to build stars and then bring in Eastern European Muslims who don't speak uh, who don't speak English and who just wrestle fuck them like that? And then your investments down the drain. So they're they really are in a tough position there. I think that's a very insightful uh, way of viewing their position vis-a-vis international MMA and where talent's actually coming from these days. It's just kind of funny uh, in in the sense that, uh, for example, one championship, while being by and large a complete shit show and a joke and uh, a venture capitalist investment to boot, uh, is also kind of of tries to present uh, itself uh, as a cultural alternative to the UFC. Like, uh, here's the UFC being all, like, uh, the UFC being obsessed with with its US-centric policies, while we are here at one, represent the quote-unquote organic uh, natural martial arts and in their primordial form, which is all about honor and respect and all that bullshit. Uh, it's it's kind of uh, funny how the interplay between all these promotions would have looked like if uh, if uh, for example Bellator one weren't such weren't such jokes basically compared to the UFC. It's kind of like it would have been kind of reflective of the broader geopolitical tendencies in in the world you know, and the, the world's culture. Yeah, it's, I mean it's kind of uh, yeah. Tommy's <laughs> Tommy's writing in chat. It's hard to believe a promotion could be more full of shit than the UFC, but one somehow manages. Don't make fun of everyone's favorite, like, you know, anime girl pairing relationship with Jack Slack <laughs> and Chartrix. 27 billion viewers. What do you not understand? <laughs> Universe across the galaxy. <laughs> alternate earths just chiming in <laughs> from, from alternate realities to watch one to I mean, watch some the of them some of them won't see angela lee and understand her dreams of being a doctor for 27 years because <sighs> that's how long it takes the signal to travel across the interstellar void but when they do when they do 
it's it's going to be a game changer. One day, one is going to be a game changer. It will happen. A- aliens will wait. aliens will come to Earth and they'll walk out of their spaceships and they'll say, "Did Angela Lee realize her dreams?" <laughs> it's gonna be like it's gonna be like that episode of Futurama <laughs> with the with the uh, with the aliens that uh, came to Earth and were asking for <laughs> Abby McBeal. <laughs> I want Lucy Liu in the short skirt. Uh, Bring her now. <laughs> uh, hacks? Anything to add? I just can't deal with the idea of Chartree trying to carry on Daft Punk's legacy. <laughs> 27 million intergalactic viewers and climbing. Oh, dear. No, I, I think that the two of you have pretty much hit all the points. Other than to just note that, you know, um, one thing that probably doesn't get mentioned enough in any discussion is the UFC is noisy as fuck. People do crazy things. Um, a sport with CTE even is going to have athletes behave more unpredictably, you know? Like, I, I just feel as, you know, I, I do econometrics, so I better just, oh, watch out, guys. It's noisy in here. <laughs> better add that to the end of the discussion before I forget to. Are we going to talk about endogenous risks, risks now? Oh, just kill the entire viewership of the chat. Like, every single person that's like, what, you mean I can't just quote IT statistics and they're always right? Oh, I'm done. <laughs> I'm unsubbing. Would you, would you model this as a fixed effects or a random effects model? Hacks died. Oh, I, think <laughs> I, just, I think I just give up. Like... <laughs> I mean, I think it, uh, we can safely say that we've uh, pretty much alienated 99% of the MMA fan base <laughs> by recording this and <laughs> just That's throwing out. really generous. It's more like 99 point, just keep writing nines. <laughs> just keep writing nines, Izzy. Just stay there for 10 hours. I, I do have one question, though, that I'm, I'm interested in your guys' opinion on, which is that do you think that a collective bargaining structure like what the NBA has, for example, would act, would that be good for the sport in the long term, or or not for some reason? I, I, I actually have mixed thoughts on this. I tend to think it would be, but um, I do wonder about taking the dynamics of team sports and organized leagues with competing owners and trying to map that on to what is essentially a, a single owner league or you know, a promotion a fight sport promotion and, and whether or not that's valid so i'd be interested to hear your guys thoughts on that it'd be good for the fighters but for the sport as a whole long term do you think it would be i mean a lot of the problems that the the sport of mma is currently facing right now is the way the ufc kind of runs this as a as they kind of style them themselves after nfl in a sense uh, and so Moving away from that towards a more traditional sports sort of deal, it's kind of, it's really hard to predict because nothing ever comes, nothing ever comes out as a 100% positive. There's always going to be some fuckery because even like if you look at the way people discuss MMA becoming an Olympic sport, look at just how much, I mean, obviously it will benefit uh, uh, the sport globally because uh Many country, countries that are hotbeds for combat sports will be able to get their talent to the world stage and present them on the world stage and kind of make a name for themselves as a as a hotbed for combat sports. Actually, in the eyes of 
people around the world. It's also going to introduce all the typical Olympic-style fuckery that we can see in amateur sports today. And so moving, when you take that into account and then move towards professional sports becoming this way as well, I feel like it's way above my pay grade <laughs> to kind of offer any sort of uh, reasonable or well-informed comment as of this juncture. But hacks? BLD, uh, if, if you thought the Ray's Jones decision was bad, get ready to get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay. Um, I think that when people say, do you think collective bargaining is good? I actually don't necessarily think people mean what they think they mean. Going to get really killed by a lot of socialists on this podcast. Okay. So let's, let's go to like first principles. The real question everyone's asking is, do you think that fighters having more bargaining power in the UF, in the MMA labor market is a good thing? And my answer to that is yes. Yes, I think it is. Because I think that MMA has a lot of room for fighters and promoters to learn to work together to build each other's brands more. Uh, Stipe Miocic is a perfect example that Tommy noted. Yes, he was very unwilling to work with the UFC. Yes, the UFC was terrible at working with him, but if the two of them had been able to meet a little closer to halfway, I'm not saying I know where the point is, I'm just saying closer to halfway, he could have been the all-American face. You know, he could have been like Kurt Angle, but with hair, even though he should shave his hair after the last fight, but that's <laughs> not a point. Um, so I think, yes, I think more fighter power is good. Is unionization the best way to do that? Even within that question, there are a lot of complicated variables and it's not just about unionization. So, oh, here we go. I'm going into labor economics. I better say this carefully because my business partner will punch me in the face. She will run screaming from like Sydney to actually kill me if I do this wrong. There's a lot of ways you can increase fighter power. You could um, set, if you like, a minimum wage for fighters. You could do that. Um, and that doesn't necessarily require unions. So you could have you could have something like the Ali Act. You could have one large fighter union. You could have specific sectoral fighter unions that could be linked to specific camps or perhaps even specific regions of the world. You could do it a lot of ways. And I'm not I guess I would say I am not really sure to what degree um, any specific union combination would be better than the other. One thing I would say with some confidence um, is that because fighting is so risky and mixed martial arts, as we discussed in the last Tendry Dome, is even more risky and error prone and difficult to predict than almost any other combat sport because of, you know, the highly variable length of the contests, the, you know, the different ways in which people can be finished, blah, 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 the rapid rate of development. I think it would probably be more effective in terms of helping fighter, if you like, bargaining power and improving fighter conditions if we had some kind of conditions flaw in the UFC compared to something like boxing. Because if you're good enough at boxing, you know, even if you're only going to be a contender, there's a pretty good chance in your life you're going to get at least one or two big paydays, and there's a pretty good chance you're at least going to box for 30-plus fights. Whereas in the UFC, you can be not quite good enough to be at the top. You can fight killers your whole time, and your career can end in 10 to 15 fights, of which only five or six are at the top level. So it's a lot more 
er risk a lot more error prone a lot more noise so i think having like some kind of floor of conditions that you can't fall under which could be bargained for by some kind of union configuration is probably more beneficial in mma than it would be in boxing or wrestling or something like that i i, I can say that with a relatively decent level of confidence the path on how to get there i'm a lot less certain of but i i think i would probably tie it off because Siren will love me for it not many fighters get a Benil Dariush. Not many fighters get written off and come roaring back to start beating the shit out of top-level guys in a hyper-competitive division. Most fighters in UFC-level competition, when they're done, they're fucking done. So I think the, I'm going to put this in brackets, UFC answer to, or the MMA answer to unions and to fighter bargaining and to conditions flaws and minimum wages is probably going to be its own unique system because of the inherent risk and noise in the business itself. Yeah, I, I wish I knew more about how, uh, like the uh, the ATP, uh, so tennis, how they run um, their players' association. Because I think something like that, where you're dealing with an individual sport, where you got to have good people to fill out the ranks and to provide contenders, but really you're driving your your views on your stars. Um, it would be very interesting to know more about kind of what their pay structure was and, and how all that worked. Obviously, you know, they're they're running tournaments and you get paid a certain amount for uh, attending and winning tournaments. And that's a different uh, a different structure than the UFC. But um, it would be interesting to know. I don't know if, if either of you guys know anything about that, but uh, that might be a better analog in some ways. Uh, I can't really think of any other individual sports unions off the top of my head. Are there any in, in like racing? I, I don't I don't really have a feel for that. I'm just I can hear hundreds of voices just going tennis that's pussy shit MMA is for real man why should we study tennis to, Frank, to learn Frank Mir's favorite sport <laughs> uh, I mean the, if the profit sharing in tennis is really low I think it's like six or seven percent of like what's generated by the grand slams but and but maybe there are other like maybe there are other conditions that make it possible to actually do well for yourself on seven percent of revenue generated because that's the other thing like you know if if a sport can have its players living in a very high standard of living even if they're a, let's say a top thousand player in tennis i'm not saying this is true in tennis i'm just using tennis as an example if you're earning like let's let's just do some figures if you're earning like six figures playing competitive high level tennis with good health care good superannuation or good savings account for the future, good conditions, and you can do that for, let's say, 10, 15 years, um, and you're only getting 7% of the revenue. Obviously, it'd be great if players earned more, but if that's possible in tennis, I would consider tennis's system to be a very interesting one to look at for MMA compared to something like you know, um, the UFC, where fighters are earning double of 7% of the revenue, but... They're getting fucked in every way it's possible to be screwed over. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting next 10 years, I guess, <laughs> in that respect. Because uh, with the, the way the, 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 the rules disputes are getting uh, resolved uh, and the way we're, we're slowly getting to the point where kind of uh, where the rules are actually getting kind of... Uh, more concretely defined than they are now and so maybe at some point we're going to see a change in the overall 
in the way the sport is organized, maybe we're going to see some tournaments. I don't know. But that's that's a huge hypothetical. But yeah. if we moved towards a to- tournament uh, format, and that could be interesting. Could be interesting to look at the tennis system. So I'm I'm actually looking at it now. It's very interesting. It's it's actually quite similar in some ways to what Hacks described, where there is a a minimum appearance fee that uh, ATP members get for being invited to uh, uh, tournaments that the ATP is involved with organizing, which all the big ones are. Um, but it's not that much, and the vast majority of their earnings come from tournament winnings. So basically, you have to be good uh, to make any significant money like good even by the standards of professional tennis players um but then you you can be kind of a workaday guy and you know maybe and make enough to stay solvent just by entering tournaments and you know playing respectably um but yeah it's mostly about the it's 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 a kind of a hybrid winner take all system where there is a floor but it's a fairly low floor uh, which interestingly is functionally kind of what the UFC actually has because of their need to maintain their brand. Um, yeah. But it would be nice to have it more formalized. Yeah, yeah formali- formalizing it this way can be actually uh, used as a way to kind of can can be used as a bit of a watershed for how the system is going to be run in the future because it's easier to sell to the uh, WME, IMG, execs, I think, and to the fighters themselves that this uh, format is going to play. This format is more in line with the usual uh, ideological kind of views of uh, the the, uh, the UFC brass and the fighters themselves in that winner takes all. It's uh, it's a kind of like social Darwinism out there. The strongest survives, all, all that bullshit. Well, I mean, that's another thing about MMA. Like, it's entirely possible to have those weird triangle situations where one guy baits another guy, baits another guy, baits another guy, and you end up with a clusterfuck of a division. Like some of the great rivalries in boxing, you know, the four Kings, if you like, there was no clear, the guy, you know, like to this day, people still debate, like did Hagler beat Leonard? What does that mean for the rankings? Who was greater? I'm not, not to say that you can't make a solid piece of analysis of who was better or not. If I, Deny you can, Kyle will fucking come to my house with a knife at four in the morning. But, like, (laughs) (laughs) the point is that there's so much ambiguity and depth in analyzing who's better rather than just going, well, this guy beat more of the other guys. He's the best. Like, that gets us nowhere. Part of what makes, again, MMA is not just a sport, it's entertainment. It's probably more entertainment than sport. So giving people narratives that stay relevant and meaningful 50, 60, 100 years in the future is a great way to keep the brand going and keep your keep your money coming in. But a winner-take-all, this guy beat this guy once, so he's much better mentality is incredibly dangerous in MMA, especially because the short number of fights that fighters have in a career means most people don't get to run it back. Yeah, I was arguing more from a point of how the actual the actual officials think and how the fighters themselves currently think, uh, but um, it's not really uh, addressing the key points that uh, need to be addressed in order to move the sport forward. So, yeah, there kind of needs to be a, a bit of a paradigm shift in how these topics are approached and how just just how people think about these topics and the in, in concepts 
because when you see when you look at it this way, uh, it's way more organic to kind of embrace the chaos of MMA and kind of uh, account for all that for the the sheer fact that MMA is so chaotic that you can't that getting the number one pound for pound undisputed greatest of all time in in all divisions across uh, or that just an immeasurably accomplished perfect fighter is essentially impossible it is impossible in other sports in more specialized sports like uh, like boxing uh, because there's there has been just simply so many boxers over the years who are can be can have a shot at being considered the greatest so yeah yeah i guess just <laughs> i guess everyone is just wrong <laughs> Well, if, if I could leave, uh, if I could leave one one final note for anybody thinking about whether John Jones should get paid and what that means for uh, for everybody else, in, in terms of kind of a context of how to think about it, uh, very very simple uh, sort of economic model. You you have to think about these things in terms of having a pie of profits and the power of buyers. In this case, the UFC buying fighter labor versus the power of suppliers, in this case, the fighters, and who can demand what and what that is going to mean for how that, that pie gets divided up. And certainly there's questions about the, the structure of the sport, whether or not you can grow the pie and who that's better for or worse for. But you know, when you, when you think about this, think about what it's going to mean for the UFC as a buyer of fighter labor uh, versus the the fighters themselves as suppliers of that labor, and who's going to come away with the lion's share of the profits, and how divisions will shift, uh, how decisions rather will uh, will shift that calculus. Um, because I think if you if you can think deeply about it in those terms, you will understand most of the scenarios that are running through the heads of uh, of, of WME executives and. Uh, you know, presumably John Jones's negotiation team as well. And there's maybe a, a bit there to just reflect on, um, to bring us right back to where we started in this discussion. Um, one thing that confuses me a lot about people that are now using the John Jones position as this is good for the fighters. John Jones has done nothing but punch down his entire UFC career. He punched down on Daniel Cormier. He punched down on fighters in heavyweight that he wanted to move up to fight. He punched down on fighters in light heavyweight that arguably beat him or were highly competitive or made him look, you know, less invincible. He punched down on a certain pregnant woman. He's punched down on responsibility for everything he's ever done in his entire life as a UFC fighter, in part because the UFC have always let him get away with it. They've kind of created their own demon in a sense. Now, if you want to stand there and you want to say, I still think, despite the fact that John Jones is a terrible person and is pretty clearly, you know, I'll th I'll push you to the wolves. I, I'm going to get away from the bear. I, I understand that some people might still think that this moment backing him can be the moment, you know. He might be the right battering ram to, to make change. I don't disagree with that analysis per se. I think that's a valid argument. But what, what disturbs me is so many people I can see actually genuinely saying, no, this is good. John Jones is the right guy for it. 
when you want to start a movement for unionization, when you want to start a movement to make things better, right? You know, I, I'm I'm sufficiently well, I am technocratic, so I'm not going to say bad idea automatically. But you have to be very careful with the Pandora's box you're opening. If you make John Jones your guy, the symbol of fighter unionization and improved conditions, because he, if if this is the moment, if this is the moment where we push for unionization, where we see the UFC's bargaining power reduced, where we create a more equitable profit sharing arrangement, where we make a better, more equitable mixed martial arts community, and John Jones is at the head of it. You have to be very, very careful with the person you're dealing with because let's say it all works. Let's say two years from now, um, we've we've got the start of a fighter union in the UFC. We're seeing fighter unions that are challenging Bellator and one, and these companies aren't folding. They're accepting the reality of the situation. We see an increase to profit sharing from 15% now to let's say 17 with a plan to go to 20 in 10 years. And then John Jones gets high on, you know, takes cocaine and crashes a car and kills a pregnant woman this time. Where does that leave us? Like, I'm not saying don't support him. I'm saying this blind adherence to this is good, this is bad is dangerous. When you go to fight a big, powerful institutional enemy, be very aware of the optics and the if you like market positioning you're taking there is a reason that rosa parks for those of you who know there at some of their african-american you know civil liberties uh movements there's a reason rosa park was picked to be you know the beginning if you like of the public understanding of the civil rights movement in america challenging segregation because strategically she was a great choice for the job keep that in mind i think when you talk about John Jones and do not forget, and this is the last part, do not forget John Jones is fighting a guy who is a big old teddy bear, except perhaps to some of his gym people who has an incredible story and seems to be very pro fighter power. So it's kind of interesting to me that we're making this all about John Jones, so many people as the guy to make this change. When I think there's a much more fitting person sitting in the room who will also no doubt be a part of these negotiations. Don't forget Ngannou. A lot of people have, which is very strange. Yeah, that's just, uh, I think, once again, that's just reflective of the way uh, people uh, do not really have a system, do not have a systematized way of thinking about these things. They don't consider all these all these auxiliary, but nonetheless extremely crucial factors. Like, oh, uh, just you know, fighters getting paid better is good objectively on all fronts, and so it doesn't matter who is going to have like head start that movement. No, it does matter. Uh, I mean, just not not to repeat everything you said, but uh, how many favors from the organizations uh, from the the UFC did Jones receive? Like uh, f- for a more recent example, uh, Piotr Jan knees Aljo's head off and rightfully gets disqualified. The rule disputes about uh, grounded knees uh, notwithstanding. Jones slams his knee into the side of Anthony Smith's head and is allowed to continue the fight after Anthony Smith uh, has to recover from getting essentially knocked out. <laughs> and I mean, don't don't get me started on the eye poke thing and all, or all of the other escapades outside the octagon. I mean, this man isn't really uh, fit. In my eyes, this man isn't fit to be a glorious leader that will lead us to equality and justice for all. And that's being generous. Well, uh, it's 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 preferable to have good symbols, but I mean, to me, like, I, 
you know, combat sports in general is just such a such a fraught and and disgusting cesspool of humanity uh, for the most part. That it's a shit show. Yeah, it you know it's it's rare when you know in everyday life it's remarkable when somebody is awful. In combat sports, it is remarkable when somebody is is not right. Like Dustin Empo- Dustin Poirier, GSP. Uh, you know, Kamaru Usman, like people like this stand out because they are not awful and are yet very, uh, very good uh, athletes and, and fantastic fighters. Um, <clears throat> but in any case, I, I don't know that John Jones being a shithead has too much bearing on his position here and on what it would mean for the sport. Um, you know, I, I think that who deserves what? I tend to take those questions very much with a grain of salt. You know, maybe it's because I'm a corporate guy um, and I've worked in large corporations my whole life. And I tend to to look at these things very dispassionately. But, um, you know, I I think that in in negotiations with the UFC going forward, whether it's a good guy like GSP or a shithead like John Jones or Conor McGregor, all that's really going to matter in the dynamics of it is who thinks they can get the most money based upon their respective uh, positions of power um, at the negotiating table and then past precedent as well. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think UFC, the UFC is looking at this at all about, uh, you know, oh, does John Jones deserve this or not? It's it's strictly a question of what precedent does this set? And then from a game theoretic perspective, like what are our future negotiations with this guy going to be? And with Jones, this very well may be his last hurrah because if he does end up taking this fight and they get it done, they'll probably sell a lot of pay-per-views and Ngannou will destroy him and murder him and destroy his mystique. Um, so, you know, they, they could very well be looking at this as a one, as a one-off in which case setting the precedent that somebody can aggressively bargain with him is even more dangerous because you don't even get like five fights out of Jones where he's making you a ton of money. Right. Um, so, I, I think focusing on I think it's reasonable to say whether or not to ask whether or not Jones is a good representative of the sport and whether or not because that does matter. If you look at Major League Baseball and their history of um, of free agency and breaking out of the control of the owners, it was very important. The symbol for that was uh, Kurt Flood, uh, very clean cut, you know, good living, respectable, likable guy. Um uh, playing for the St. Louis Cardinals as opposed to somebody that no one would get behind. Uh, so, I mean, it does matter, but I, I think to the UFC, it matters much less than the fact that they're probably only going to get one fight out of Jones uh, at this level. You know, they played ball with Conor McGregor, who's also an asshole, but their expected return on playing ball with him was, uh, was much larger because they thought, I think correctly, that they could get more fights out of him that would sell really well. Yeah, I agree. I, I, Personally, I don't even think that uh, Jones is going to get what he wants. And it, and if he doesn't, then it, it really doesn't matter in the long run much, like uh, whether he does or not. Because, uh, I mean, just as you pointed out, it's uh, it's kind of a one-off, I think. Uh, I think anyone can, everyone can see this. The way I express my moral outrage, I guess, is more directed at the way people, at the people who think this is going to be objectively a good thing from a moral standpoint or from a labor standpoint. And I, I like, my knee-jerk reaction once again was that, yeah, sure, pay him, but now, like, I vehemently, vehemently disagree with the idea that Jones should deserves anything really. Hex, any closing statements? 
I think we're yeah. pretty much exhausted the topic. I guess the short version is I, I agree with Tommy and everything corporate on this matter. I, yeah. I think that the, the big question is to challenge an, an institution as powerful as a corporation as the UFC and WE, IME backers, you need a movement, right? Like you do. There's, there's no way around it. You just do. You need an institution of similar power. And it's not going to come from economic reasons because there's no there's no union that's going to step into this mess. They're not crazy enough. So we have to build one. To build one, we need people. To build, you know, we, to, those people are going to be motivated by certain things. So if there's going to be a movement or an institution that challenges the UFC's power on fighter pay, then the, if you like, the morals and the ethics and the ideological foundation of that are going to be very important. And that's for me why I would I would encourage people to be more critical of Jones's, if you like, motivations and attitudes in this bargaining because, you know, um, company values, if you like, and a union is a company in many ways. It serves most of the same purposes. It just goes in a different direction. Does matter, does have tangible, real, provable impact on, you know, how it behaves. But yes, in the end, the cold money-based calculus isn't going to change if it's John Jones or Encarno or so on. But it could have some interesting implications for the cultural, if you like, mapping or environmental conditions of mixed martial arts as a as a culture moving forward. And I think it's that side, if you like, it's that cultural, social in- type of institutional side where the UFC is at its least able to manage and understand and control. And that's where, the, if you like, the revolution is going to have to come from, as it often does. Yeah, uh, I guess um, the moral of the story is that same rules apply anywhere. The fundamental laws of uh, economics are always going to be pretty much the same, unless there's going to be some kind of like huge paradigm, paradigm shift towards space gay socialism. Space gay communism, uh, post scarcity gay communism, like uh, in Star Trek or whatever. But uh, yeah, framing matters. Framing also matters because, like, um, well, to risk drawing the ire of all my friends on the website, <laughs> just the ire of uh, uh, the listeners, I mean, um, uh, to, and to run the risk of making this very political, uh, for example, a, a good. A good comparison would be China in the US, that uh, China represents a very obvious example of a classically authoritarian country run by a one-party system whose current goal is to do everything in its power to remove any threats to, to the ruling elite. And uh, you may disagree with this, that uh, the US institutions may be a front for a similarly oppressive system, but the very fact that it ideologically tries to present itself as a counter to China's ideals is significant. It all boils down to power dynamics uh, and how they're presented in the end. Like, for example, me personally, I do not for a second believe that the US is a paragon of freedom and democracy because in my view, it is not. It's just my outsider's perspective. But it is full of people who nonetheless believe in those ideas and by extent, uh, the classes who run the U.S. institutions are forced to at least pay lip service to those ideas so as not to run the risk of alienating the very people who constitute their base uh, their base of power. So it, once again, it may seem like a distinction without a difference, but in practice, the very ideas that make China tick are designed to be, once again, extractive in nature. Uh, that is, they want to milk their power base for as long as they can, as hard as they can, 
to remain to keep that uh, very limited class, the very limited, the very small ruling class of elites in power. While the ideas that the U.S. represents are inclusive, maybe not in practice, but in concept, and that is very important. Uh, I I largely agree with that. I I think uh, you know not to get too political at the very end of the podcast, but. Um, you know, America is a nation of ideals that we often fail to live up to to their fullest potential, uh, without a doubt. Uh, but the ideals are very sincere and, and tend to be held by most people across the, the spectrum uh, within America. Um, we, I, I think it remains one of the least cynical countries uh, in the entire world, which is a real strength of America. Uh, you know, lack of cynicism and optimism, um, whereas, you know, China is pretty nakedly authoritarian. Uh, you know, if someone like Donald Trump had come to uh, power in a country like China uh, or Russia, for that matter, um, he would not have relinquished power after four years when he lost a contested election. Uh, whereas, despite a lot of sound and fury, that was pretty, pretty clearly always what was going to happen to Donald Trump once uh, the election results came in and, and he lost to Joe Biden. And, you know, now we're we're better than we were when he was president. And, you know, we, we will be until uh such time as we make the bad decision to elect another useless demagogue. But um, that sort of uh, po the possibility of, of renewal and systematic change and living up to our ideals is uh, is always present in America in a way that I, I don't think it is in every other country. And, and that is very meaningful. Yeah, because uh, to deny that uh, these ideas hold any power would be to deny to deny the concept that ideas and ideologies have power in the first place. And by extent, you can argue that if this is true, then your own ideology does not matter. And this leads to a very destructive model of political nihilism where anything goes, which is something that we can see in how extreme groups such as the alt-right or the tankies play with the established terminology to push a narrative that does not represent reality. And you can take that example and kind of maybe with some caveats, uh, like use it to describe the the power dynamics in uh, in MMA between the UFC and uh, the fighters and uh, fight fans and how we approach that. So you could argue that any, in the end it's all about the it's all about the money and that uh, all MMA fighters are horrible people. So it doesn't really matter who gets paid or not. But if you want the sport to become better, if you want the sport to get rid of all the moral baggage that constantly uh, pursues it uh, and uh, the evidence of which we can see every day, you kind of need to put stock in, in those ideas. But you need to be very, very careful about it because it's also very dangerous to kind of uh, go full hog on just kind of trying to paint everything morally wrong or right. Hacks. <laughs> uh, I'm going to continue torturing you until and milking you for your opinions until it gets to uh, what 90 minutes, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I would say two things. Uh, firstly, I would say I very like how you slowly like built a case for if you disagree with me, 
because you say my points are wrong, then never read me theory again. Fuck off, because I know that you're so sick and tired of people telling you to read more theory, um, particularly when they're white people who have literally never been to areas <laughs> that are strongly linked to, you know, the cultural... I live in the fucking field! <laughs> the cultural weavings that are a part of your day-to-day life. Um, but I would, I would say maybe to be a little bit um, less explicitly political and more talk about, I don't know, framing... If you have two places or countries or companies or wages or whatever, and one is 100% bad and the other one is 98% bad, and you don't think that that can be an enormous difference, that 2% that isn't bad, not even saying it's good, just saying it's not bad. If you don't think that 2% can be enormous over 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, then I would gently encourage people to look up the concept of compounding interest and to just play around with some numbers and see how incredibly quickly even a, you know, one and a half percent, two percent, three percent difference can completely change the dynamic of anything that can be measured in numbers in even a vague sense. Yeah, pretty much. So before we just. Uh, go off the deep end and start talking about <laughs> just <laughs> talking about Trump and uh, politics and uh, like ideologies and historical examples of fascist dictatorships or whatever. Uh, I actually love it. talking about politics with non-Americans. <laughs> no, it's yeah. fascinating because everybody is influenced is influenced heavily by American culture, but yet Americans are not in the same way uh, heavily influenced by uh, non-American cultures unless they so choose to be. So it's yeah. always very interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like it's interesting how Americans themselves are kind of insulated from the larger, broader implications of uh, the American cultural hegemony. It's good to be the king. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, For now. Yeah, no argument against that. Just, uh, I mean, it's easier uh, anyway. I know what it's like to be like a descendant of a, if a of a fallen empire, so <laughs> I do not recommend it. Uh, all right Uh, this um, i think we can all agree that this was a pretty like productive and uh illuminating discussion yeah very Uh, interesting i appreciate it thanks for having me on thank you very much for indulging us and joining us for this discussion and uh hacks uh thank you for organically (laughs) just shifting into a co-host role and letting me kind of rest and collect my thoughts because i'm really I'm still unsure in the in my spoken English ability and kind of in my ability to convey thoughts succinctly and uh, in an understandable manner. So uh, uh, thanks and all that. And uh, I think I think we're done here. Uh, once again, thank you, uh, thank you both for joining me. And uh, yeah. I uh, hope you I uh, hope you hope uh, the listeners enjoyed this and I uh, hope uh, we didn't bore you too much with the all the technical details and uh, didn't uh, <laughs> hope I didn't alienate all of TFS patrons and, <laughs> and my boss and uh, all my colleagues but I think this was a long time coming this discussion was warranted and uh, this these topics need to be examined with with a critical eye you can't just default to uh, right or wrong. You can't just 
settle down in uh, your comfort zone of what you think is correct. Like personally, I've I've learned a lot about, for example, like the way corporations work and reframed a, a lot of my pre-existing knowledge and uh, gained uh, some new information that I'm going to ponder a long time on. And uh, yeah, I think I'm going to give, I'm going to have to give this podcast a listen myself because some of the some of the things that uh, were being said uh, uh, flew over my head <laughs> in the spur of the moment. But yeah. All right. I guess that's enough of that. Uh, see you guys uh, whenever a new interesting topic comes up. All right. This has been Tengridome, episode 10. Cheers. <laughs>